All right, so I'm at the pet store. I'm buying cat litter. And by the way, how far has the podcast fallen? You know, we're starting the show talking about cat litter. So that question pretty much answers itself. Anyway, I'm at the pet store. I'm buying cat litter. I'm on the way out. And this guy is walking next to me. And he notices that we're both carrying the same brand of cat litter. And he goes, this stuff's great, isn't it? I said, yeah, it's, it's really great, really effective. And he goes, well, you know, there's something about it. There's, I don't know what it is, but the smell, the texture, the feel of it, it just really evokes to me the organic nature of the natural world. I love it. It's been a real game changer. And there's something about the smell of it that just makes me feel peaceful. And I said, yeah, all that is true. But the most important thing is that the cat likes it, right? And he goes, oh, I don't have a cat. I imagine if you go to that guy's house and you're like, can I use your bathroom? And he'd be like, yeah, just down the hall to the right, you'll see a little blue box. I don't know. What else am I supposed to think? Why am I talking about cats? Well, there is a reason. You'll find out why in about a minute and a half. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers the podcast. Check this out. The music of Scruffy the Cat, a band which featured my guest today on the program, Stephen Fredette. Let me tell you a little bit about Scruffy the Cat and Stephen Fredette. Well, Stephen Fredette may have spent a lot of time playing in Scruffy the Cat, but he also spent a lot of time on the wall of my dorm room because I was a huge Scruffy fan. Of course, that detail is not on the Scruffy Wikipedia page because nobody cares about my dorm room. And, I mean, you know, looking back from a domestic angle, I clearly care little about it as well. Why was I so disgusting in college? That's a different podcast. We'll get there. But where we are now is with one of my favorite bands, Scruffy the Cat. Now, speaking of college, Scruffy dominated the college rock scene of the late 80s with a run of fabulous albums like Tiny Days and Moons of Jupiter, plus two stellar EPs, High Octane Revival and Boom 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 Bingo. How good are these EPs? I put them up there with Chronic Town by R.E.M. They're, to me, peerless. Now, if you don't have any of these albums or the EPs, get them. The Scruffy Songbook is the most perfect blast of rootsy indie pop you'll ever hear. The six-member Boston outfit, that's right, six members, which formed in 1983, lasted just under a decade, breaking up in 1990. But during that time, they packed their resume with highlights. They went top five on CMJ's college radio charts. They were played on MTV's 120 Minutes. They were critically acclaimed by pretty much everyone, including the Village Voice and the Chicago Tribune. With Moons of Jupiter, they cracked the Billboard Top 200, and they toured with Los Lobos, The Replacements, and Yola Tango. 
The six-member Scruffy the Cat personnel consisted of Charlie Chesterman, Stephen Fredette, Mac Paul Stanfield, Randall Lee Gibson IV, Stone of Fitch, and Burns Stanfield. Now, Omnivore put out two fabulous anthologies that celebrate the band's legacy, and as far as alums go, Scruffy the Cat is down two men because of the deaths of Chesterman and Gibson, but the music remains and it sounds as fresh as ever. As for Stephen, he's a marvelous artist who did all the Scruffy the Cat covers, by the way, and he just had his first gallery show in the Boston area. And he's been working on some songs. I'll let him bring you up to date. So here we go. Me and Stephen Fredette of Scruffy the Cat, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. playing a lot of music these days like what's your what's your music life <laughs> okay uh the story is uh that you know i think it was about four years ago i decided to uh basically devote myself to my artwork uh full time and uh so uh i uh, basically did not pick up <clears throat> a guitar for uh you know like three or so, some years and uh i i i played it at randall's memorial and uh that was the first time in 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 years that i had played and that got me back into it and so i am actually i i am actually <laughs> at, at this point sort of like trying to yeah re-enter the music thing so i am in the process so, now, I know your brother plays, right? Yes, my brother is a musician. He's far more active than I am, but he is a musician. Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't know what it's like. To, how do you make a re-entry into the music scene of 2023? I wouldn't know where to begin. It, it certainly is not an easy thing, I must admit. <laughs> uh, to, uh, uh, to tell you the truth, I, about a month ago, uh, so uh, especially because I, I, I live... Uh, you know, I, I live in a town, you know, uh, you know, about 25 miles from Boston. So it's not that uh, I'm, I'm a bit isolated. So it, it is a little difficult to get people uh, to come out to play with. And so that that is one thing. Uh, and unfortunately, it's sort of befallen to me to be the singer. That wasn't my intention because I am, I am certainly not a singer. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> so anyway, I've been, uh, I have been, uh, sort of playing in the basement with who I can get to play. And I, I decided at one point, uh, that in order to convince myself if this was even worth pursuing, I would go to an open mic by myself and play in front of people just me so i actually oh. went to i went to an open mic uh and did that so uh i went to an open mic here on the south shore of boston where i knew that no one would know me you know i didn't go into boston where my friends were 
and have them be understanding, <laughs> you know, of my of my uh, uh, understanding of, of the shortcomings of my shortcomings. I wanted to actually go to people who didn't know who I was and. You know, if, if if there was, I mean, if people were throwing chairs at me in horror, that would be fine. Uh, <laughs> but if it was just total blank indifference, I would know that it was not a path worth pursuing. So, uh, so I did that. So, uh, so that is that's that's what. Re in, in fact, it was very funny the 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 night that I went and did that. I was actually having flashbacks to the very first Scruffy the Cat show which was uh, <clears throat> my, uh, I mean, Charlie had been in another band, but I had actually never been in a band, you know, that had played uh, in, in front of people. And, and I was having flashbacks of, of what it was like to like, you know, perform for the first time for people, which you, I mean, you do find out, you know, that there is like a, a physical component as to like, you know, am I, you know, going to pass out? And am I going to have enough stamina to make it to the end of this set? So right. I, I did remember that, you know, feeling from 40 years before as to can I actually physically do this? Did muscle memory kick in? Oh, sure. Of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah. definitely did. Uh, but, you know, but before it all started, so did terror. Uh, <laughs> right. that, that, that long, familiar feeling of terror uh, came back. I, I, I do have to admit that, that uh uh, there is a list online somewhere of, of uh, someone. Someone did a spreadsheet for us uh, back in back in like the early '90s of every Scruffy the Cat show, and there are 750 of them. And before every single one of them, I was terrified. So it's it's nice it's nice to revisit my terror. <laughs> did you feel alone in your terror? Were the other guys? Did it seem like you could say to them, like, were you freaked out or everyone else seemed like they were fine? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. No, no, it was very much, you know, Scruffy, you, it wasn't a terribly communicative experience. You were pretty much, you know, I mean, it was chatty and stuff, but I, 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 it wasn't a very, yeah, a, emotion sharing experience so yeah uh, i mean that's what we were like we, uh, as people we were you know scruffy had a lot of members and so it's like yeah I mean, we did really a team it, it wasn't like you were the police with three people yeah no i mean it, it, it was supportive but you know it, it, yeah yeah you know it I always thought of us as like, you know, the superhero team of passive aggression. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just the way we were. We were, we, we were not a terribly outgoing bunch of people, which is fine. You know, I would have, I would have felt very uncomfortable in another situation. You were young men. And I think it's sometimes when you're, when you're young, you don't default to how's everybody feeling? Yeah, definitely, definitely not. I mean, right. I mean, it, it certainly, it certainly suited my my twisted, you know, ex Roman Catholic upbringing. The uncommunicative. Yeah, I mean, that's you know, in in my family, you certainly, you know, I I was raised with four brothers. It was five boys, and that's not a recipe for for getting in touch with your feelings and sharing them. So. Was Scruffy my my perception of you guys? 
as a young man in California in 1986, I'm 16 and obsessed with the band. <laughs> I always thought of you as like a kind of, it looked like a real like working class band. Um, you know, like just like uh, hard. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll have to think about all of us. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, definitely. I mean, Stona. Yeah, you know, Stona, Stona was, we always had an Ivy League member, I have to admit. Uh, yeah. Stoner first and then and then Burns, they were Ivy League. But yeah, I mean, we came from, I would say it was very, yeah, very middle class uh, uh, backgrounds, definitely. I mean, the two of them from Des Moines and, you know, Randall and I from, from the Boston area, so. Well, Randall had a fancy name because he had the... <laughs> oh, would you love to hear a lovely story about Randall's name? Randall was Randall Lee Gibson IV. The original Randall Lee Gibson was a uh, a colonel in the Confederacy. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and a senator uh, from Louisiana in, in the post-Civil War era. And, and of course, uh, uh, I'm... <clears throat> in my personal opinion, a terrible person. He was, uh, as far as I know, he was involved in the, uh, the, the creation of the, the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, Yikes. Uh, and Randall was just like the loveliest person. And uh, uh, it just shows you the way families go. And, and to tell you the truth, uh, there, there was a book that came out uh, in the 90s and it turned out that this sort of horrible, uh, you know, Confederate uh, person. It, it, the family was founded uh, 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 in the in the seventeenth century because they were freed African slaves, <laughs> which uh, we're we're pretty sure the original Randall Lee Gibson was totally unaware of. But that is what one would call an irony. Yes, Randall Lee Gibson the fourth. Yes. Well, you know, with each Randall iteration, they just got they got it improved. Uh, it improved yeah. tremendously. Yeah, yeah, finally they landed on a on a nice guy. It became the apotheosis of Randall Lee Gibson. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was it was probably around oh, probably like mid, maybe it was late in 92 and I'm in this grocery store in the Bay Area here. It's called I don't know if you guys have a Lucky's out there, but Lucky. no no okay and there's and they're selling books for like a buck mm -hmm. and it's just i'm like well that's weird and i you know i'm into books so i thought i'd take a look and i pull out stona's first book and i just i can't like i almost passed out i couldn't believe <laughs> how cool it was that i was buying stona's book in luckies and you know this is before the internet so you don't know you don't know what happens to people and where they are and it just felt like a a message from the gods that oh that's a, that's a wonderful story i mean well i have to tell stone that it's a great story he will he'll love that he will love that it was so cool to to oh, um wow. run across that but you know <laughs> my point is like i had lost track of you guys yeah. um and i didn't know what was going on and so mm -hmm. you're sort of like you build this sort of mythical idea of what happens to people but um what was going on for you in the in the 90s like where after scruffy broke up like what ha what happened oh let me think uh um you well know, everyone like went their ways musically you know obviously charlie pursued his solo career 
uh, and I just sort of like bounced. I, I think at one point I was like in three or four bands at a time. Uh, I started having like completely bizarre medical <laughs> catastrophes. Um, uh, uh, and uh, yeah, Mac went off to become a lawyer, which he is now. Uh, and uh, Randall, Randall became a master electrician uh and uh, uh and got married and had a daughter uh but he kept playing he was he was in also he was in the neats and and uh he was in the the real kids you know randall would always be in demand because randall was boston rock royalty uh mm-hmm. uh <clears throat> you know you probably don't know you know boston boston rock history god hope you don't but randall is boston rock royalty uh was boston rock royalty it was it was like getting randall and scruffy the cat was like a dream uh uh he was in you know several like completely uh iconic boston rock bands before he joined scruffy and so after scruffy you know he was in uh, a lot of you know big bands himself so so that's what we we just went off and did various things you know uh charlie was the only one who had like a a real uh, uh meaningful career uh i did just various things so uh uh charlie and i ended up working at the same job so we ended up being in the same room together for another 20 years while we did things. so uh so that was us that's where we went off to was that at the at the the printing shop no uh we were we were we worked at a picture frame shop making picture frames uh, okay his girlfriend ran a picture and we did fancy picture frames so uh, i realized at one point uh, one morning I was standing there realizing I'd basically been standing in the same room with Charlie for about 25 years. So. <laughs> well, you could stand next to worse people. Oh yeah. We, we used to have all sorts of completely bizarre conversations. Like we had very, we had very strong opinions on what the best fruit was. Fruit was a very important thing. And we we would constantly have this thing about uh, 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 rock rock trinities, you know, who who are the rock trinities? Like Joe Strummer, Carl Perkins, and Chuck Berry. We, you would you know, on and on and on about those or something. You know, it's like who's your rock trinity for today or something. So yeah, so we could we could keep that going forever. Filling in the the blanks, I know when. When Moons of Jupiter came out, I was a freshman in college, and I thought, mm-hmm. okay, because Tiny Days had just, I used to work at a, a heavy metal radio station in high school. My high school had a, a metal Ooh. radio station, and I would sneak Scruffy in between Accept and Venom, and, uh, you know, in between Black Metal, I'd play My Baby, She's All Right, or whatever, All you right. know, Excellent. and uh, I just was in love with the band, and when Moons of Jupiter came out, I thought, okay, here we go. They're about to take over the world. And um, and then, you know, in my, because there's no internet to fill in the blanks, all I'd heard was the band had broken up and and that was that. I mean, but I was really surprised and heartbroken and I thought for sure you guys get back together again. Um, but I, I imagine the, the, 
in my brain, the end of the band is this really sad thing for a fan. But as for someone who was part of the personnel, was it something you saw coming? <sighs> yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, <clears throat> part of it was that, that, you know, part of it was that the old, like, you know, bad record label relationship, you know, the old story. Uh, and that led to, I mean, being on the road is, 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 a, is, is hard. It's a hard existence. You love it. I'm not complaining about it. It was, it was, it was a wonderful way to live life. Physically, it's incredibly taxing and, and mentally it's very taxing. It's a stressful way to live. Uh, if, if, <clears throat> if, if you're doing it and it's, and you're, you're, you know, you feel like it's rewarding, you're fine. If, if it, if it's not, it, it, you know, you start to fray at the edges and then you start taking it out on each other. And mm. so that's basically what happened. We, you know, things, our relationship with the record label uh, was bad. And so we just agreed to, you know, end our relationship with the record label. And then after that, uh the, the the constant touring thing eventually things just got bleaker and bleaker and then our relationship with each other just got worse and worse and so it just that's that's what happened so you know that was around the time when bands like oh positive and toy dog pondering and the rave ups they all got snatched up by major labels i would imagine that scruffy had some suitors sure <sighs> God, I don't know how much, you know, I want to go into this because, you know, uh, I personally am terribly thankful that, that, that the, 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 that um, uh, uh, Spinal Tap came out right about the time Scruffy was formed. <laughs> because <laughs> it's a cautionary tale uh, to understand that it, that, that the history of your band is not an important thing at all and you shouldn't talk about a lot of things because they just don't mean anything at all i'm sorry um yeah you know a lot of what went on in those days the later days like uh, at the late 80s uh involved bands signing contracts with labels to get a great deal of money uh which was like a, a trap because the record labels don't give you money uh, without expecting something in return, which a lot of a lot of bands did sign those contracts, and then they found themselves trapped. <clears throat> and uh, one thing about us was we always realized that, you know, we would never get involved with people if they were offering us money because we knew that they're, you know. Uh, so a lot of people we knew signed things. We knew a lot of people who signed like contracts for huge amounts of money only to find that they would record an album and then the label would drop them before the album came out. Ugh. And then they were contractually obligated to the label and they could never do anything again under the name of their band. You see the trap that they got into? Right. They, they were legally, as an entity, owned by the label, but the label, the, the, being dropped by the label meant that the label owned their name and and their entity and they could never ever put anything out ever again you know that's that was the thing they had given the band like a million dollars but but then the band owed them the million dollars and the band wasn't allowed to exist this was the trap a lot of people got into in those days 
So uh, yeah, we never we 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 just knew that we never wanted to do something like that. So unfortunately, we just never got involved. Our problem with our label was they refused to ever sign a, a distribution in in Europe, so we couldn't go to Europe, and no one in Europe ever heard of us. And so there were That's a pity because that was relativity that you guys were on. I, I, yeah. It's strange that they wouldn't have done something like that. Record labels are quirky organizations. And yeah. They, <laughs> and they hold all the power. And well, I, I don't know. I guess it doesn't exist anymore. But that's that was, yeah, record labels are weird. And because record labels consist of human beings and human beings are weird and quirky. And, and you never find out these weird things until you get into the situation. It's like, well, we're going great. By the way, how come we can't put out records in Europe? Ah, they won't give us enough money. It's weird. But that's how you run into these problems. What you're talking about, I feel that that exactly what you're saying probably destroyed bands like Big Dipper and O Positive um, who signed with big labels. Maybe Oh yeah, yeah, I probably. I don't know their I don't know their their personal stories, but I wouldn't be surprised because I I know several bands that it did happen to and and that's stuff like that would happen. And and how could you ever conceive of that beforehand? You don't know about that. So yeah yeah god you know i think i i would have been weak i would have taken the money i think i think i would have been it's a deal with imagine the devil, if but... someone offered you a million dollars or like they had they would have these bidding wars and you know seven hundred fifty, eight hundred thousand, a million dollars you know right. a lot of times you know i mean you know sometimes those bands they'd be 18 or 19 years old and you know and be like yeah we're rich so yeah yeah it, i mean good foresight on that one sorry to jump around but you were saying sure. you know when you didn't play guitar for so long would you like walk by your guitar and go what are you looking at like what, did oh you no honestly them? some of them are hanging on the wall <laughs> uh well i i have to admit that uh, you know i i i think i i spent like three or four months repairing the damage you know that you know like years of so i think i've i've performed my act of contrition to my instruments that ignoring them did so you know taught myself guitar repair so it's like okay you know i guess i'm making it up to you so <laughs> and how about your hands you had to get those calluses back right oh <laughs> yeah we won't talk about that that actually was probably a big stumbling block too it's like oh my yeah Calluses, the musician's friend. <laughs> so when you when you did the open mic, were those just new songs that you had written? No, I mean I'll tell you the truth. You know what? Actually, I've been uh, I've been sort of uh, amassing a, a, a bunch of old Charlie songs, old me songs, and old Stunna songs that are not songs. They're sort of like. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, they're 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 Scruffy the Cat songs, but I don't think anyone. Listen, I'm I'm the only person who's was there from beginning to end, besides Charlie, uh, and so I I I know of a whole bunch of songs that you know people probably don't know about. So you know, I have a, there are a bunch of songs that are like really good songs that uh, sort of fell by the wayside, and I was like, wow, you know, these are actually pretty good songs. That's actually why I was. I hope I can find someone who could sing, but, but hey, I gotta go, you know, I gotta go with what I got. So yeah, I'm, right. I'm, I'm 
I, I'm doing like a bunch of uh, uh, like really early and, and a sort of lesser known. Uh, I guess it's Scruffy the Cat stuff. It's I'm just saying it's Charlie stuff, Stana stuff, and new stuff. So, is there a touch of the archivist in you that you that you have that stuff? You know what? Uh, my my mom's family is a family of, of historians, so it it comes out in us all the time. So yeah, we it's like a, I I I I guess I'm gonna have to blame it on that. It's a family trait. We're 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 archivists. You know, we're we're librarians. We're historians. So I guess that's what I am. So. So you have some so scruffy ephemera in your in your archives. I wish I did. This is all coming from memory. Oh wow, really? It's all from honest, honest to God. I you know what? I'm there's a few of them that I really wish I had records of, and I'm just going by dead memory. <laughs> even the lyrics. Hmm? Yeah, yeah, even lyrics. There's a few of them that I wish I could do that I don't have lyrics of. I have like you know, uh, uh, on online there are some like uh, live radio broadcasts, and I can't actually figure the lyrics out for. It. And I'm like, wish there was like, uh, you know, wish there was lyrics of that written down. So yeah, I'm I'm making do with what I can. So, man, Charlie was a really clever lyricist. I can't believe the stuff he'd fit into a three minute song. Yeah, I know, I know. Unfortunately, sometimes Charlie could really swallow his lyrics when he sang, so I can't figure them out. <laughs> uh, yeah, there... Charlie, Charlie was, yeah, Char Charlie, yeah, that's why I'm doing it, because some of these songs no one knows, and it's like, oh my God, Charlie, that's a great lyric. When I first heard that that first EP, I was like, God, that guy, that guy is really smart. Like, these are just really interesting you know, I was so young, but I recognized like nobody was writing songs like that. Well, yeah. The other thing about Charlie was was meeting Charlie was that um, it, it's very clever, but but he always he was always like firmly grounded in reality because you know when, you know I was like playing and stuff, and I was trying to be horribly clever, <laughs> and 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 you know uh, it, about the time I met him. Uh, you know, very much the trend in Boston at the time because uh, uh, Mission of Burma had just completely like taken the scene by storm uh, was for art bands and stuff like that. And I was in art school for heaven's sakes. And, you know, so it was like, you know, it was a very smart alecky time in Boston. And I was trying to be one of the smart alecks. And Charlie was very much, you know, he was he, he was very common sense and, and very like, all of his lyrics, he he would manage to tie things to very like, uh, 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 you know, tangible things, and still be really smart and witty and funny, and and that came as a revelation to me. So, uh, you know that you know it's a thing about Charlie that that always you know sort of took my breath away. It was like. Because, uh, you know, I, I would ask him for help on songs and things like that when I first met him. He would help me finish songs that I had started. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, it, and that was the thing that just that's always amazed me where I would be going off on some like ridiculous tangent. He would just bring it right back to the real world. And like you say, you know, it'd be incredibly clever. So.
Yeah, he was like a traditionalist and a modernist at the same time. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one thing that that we both uh, had in common was he had this this incredible love of uh, uh, you know of rock and roll. You know, it's, you know, it's like you know, fifties rock and roll, rock and Billy, and stuff like that. Which you know, at the time we met, uh, we met like in nineteen eighty. And, uh, you know, the, the, the music that we had gone through in the 70s was getting further and further away from that, which is, you know, obviously what resulted in punk rock and was, the, you know, the one thing that both of us had gone through separately uh, had been like, you know, to, to go back towards the, you know, uh, uh, the, the sort of like, you know, what, what grounded music in this, you know, in the the feeling of, of rock and roll of, of the 50s and stuff like that so yeah definitely uh you know it's like what what made the music powerful was was the the aspects of of the music of the 50s and, and stuff like that it wasn't like you know in the, the bands the people were listening to when we were in high school were, were you know like yes and, and, and right you know it was like we felt like complete outsiders because people were listening to records where the song lasted an entire side and they were singing about things that didn't make any sense and so you know that's why like you know hearing the Ramones and stuff like that was you know just completely cleared your head and stuff like that so yeah i was going to say that i actually i talked to charlie once when he was he was at work at the, at the frame shop oh god yeah right and he talked to me for about an hour i was sitting in my office on campus this is years ago and he talked for about 20 minutes about the ramones and how much he loved the ramones oh yeah yeah which makes that. sense because the Ramones were, were sort of that sort of traditional modern thing. That... Yeah, no, it's just like, you know, oh God, you know, I remember like, you know, God, the mid seventies were just like, it was just this morass of like James Taylor. And I, God, I can't even think of what was going on in those days, you know, especially like growing up in the suburbs and stuff like that. Um, and the people around you and what they were listening to and it was just like a confusing time and and you know you know i remember for me i remember like the sex pistols and stuff like that and and you know i remember actually following the stuff in the press you know them writing the stories about them throwing up on reporters and saying nasty things i remember reading the stuff about the ramones and and uh all the songs were I wanna now I wanna now I wanna spit some blue now I wanna and I'm thinking oh god this is just so dumb and silly because you know that's what the that's you know the 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 press hangs a story on a on a thing and you know and the sex was to think oh you know they're doing this for attention and then I heard the music yeah <laughs> and I went oh my god <laughs> you know and it just it it, it just clear it, 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 and my mind just cleared out you know and i heard i heard uh uh you know what was it the one with the no future no future is it anarchy in the uk oh yeah, yeah. I, just, I just heard them go into the no future thing and i went oh my 
Yeah. And I, you know, the same thing that Charlie was going through in Iowa, I was going through here. What would you and Charlie need a band like Boston for? You know, like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There you go. There's one of the bands. Right. It's like, well, what? And it was like, you know, the production. Oh, Van. Oh, God. Van Halen was at the same time, too. Yeah. Oh, listen to the listen to the guitar playing. And, you know, it's like I couldn't I couldn't fault the guitar playing, but it didn't mean anything to me. And then, you know, all I needed was like 15 seconds of the Sex Pistols thing. And my life literally changed on the spot. So did bands like Joy Division, did, did the English post-punk stuff mean anything to you at all? Sure, of course. I mean, like I said, for heaven's sakes, I was in art school. <laughs> right. <was> like... <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that all did. I mean, it, it, it did. Nothing, it, it, stuff like that wasn't as like, ground shaking as 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 some of the other stuff was but yeah uh, yeah it certainly did yeah. the first cure record i mean the first time i heard boys don't cry i think i listened to it about 25 times yeah over and over and over and over again the first time i heard cheap trick like uh um first time i heard surrender yeah just because it was all so simple and direct and and it, you what know, it is for me, it was always the lyrics too. Anyway, when I heard, you know, rolling numbers, rock and rolling, got my Kiss records out. I'm like, oh my god, that is just so perfect. What, what can I do? Yeah, I mean, a song on a record that mentions a record, it's like that's yeah. like, <laughs> right? It's so meta. <laughs> exactly. It's like, <laughs> I mean, I was, you know, I was reading postmodern fiction, and it was like it was postmodern rock and roll or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, even like Blue Oyster Cult, there's that line where it says time to play B-sides, you know? I'm sorry, I have a huge soft spot for Blue Oyster Cult. You know, Me too. On your feet or on your knees. Oh, man. Yeah. He's on fire with rock and roll. They were so good, but they. what's cool about them is they were tongue-in-cheek, and I think that was... Exactly. No, you could tell it was a bunch of smarty pants. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for smarty pants. So. Yeah, they because in some ways they're like screwing around and, and subverting that. That actually, sort of you know thing. what? Like a like a like a a big scruffy cover in the cover in the early days was "Don't Fear the Reaper," because you know the the like the sort of hypnotic uh, the the rhythm guitar part. Uh, you know, when I finally figured it out, you know, I was always just hypnotized by the guitar part, and so. You know, I was like the cover guy in Scruffy. Anything I could figure out on the guitar became a Scruffy cover. And so like one day um, I was like, you know, playing Don't Fear the Reaper. And, 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 you know, my perspective and Charlie's perspective would be different because Charlie was from the Midwest. And, you know, that whole like, you know, Charlie went to every rock show he could because in, you know, in Des Moines, it was what you could get as opposed to what you wanted to go see. So Charlie was always going to like, you know, see like UFO and REO Speedwagon just because it was music, because that's all you could go to see. And so he was probably a plenty of blue blue oyster cult because they would just have those festivals where you have like six bands. So we ended up doing <laughs> Don't Fear the Reaper as a cover. 
and it turned into like a huge hit and like whenever we would play people would be yelling repa 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 we had we actually had to stop doing it because because everyone would be yelling for it um but yeah that was one of our covers don't fear the reaper scrubby the cat with farfisa oregon (laughs) well and banjo banjo and farfisa oregon Good God. But yeah. I, you know, that's totally, I could see Charlie just, you know, that's totally in, in his. Oh, yeah. Charlie would just like, like, he would just, you know, right into laser focus of, of singing. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever play with Charlie on, in his solo shows? Did you ever sit in? Strangely enough, I did. Oddly enough, I did. He, he, he asked me to play in a couple of the shows. Uh, um, yeah, I'm not even sure why, but I did. Yeah, I did actually play a couple of the shows. One time we opened for the Hootie Gurus. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. It was like a show we always kind of wanted with Scruffy, but we never got. But then he did get, uh, for his solo thing, he got to, to open for the Hootie Gurus. And the, we, we were down south one time, and like in Louisiana, and some guy was there and he's like i'm going to see the hootie gurus so that was always you know was called them the hootie gurus uh and uh yeah it was a big show at the paradise and he asked me to he asked me to be in the band so i said sure yeah i think i played two or three shows with his solo thing so every time i got one of his records one of his solo records i would think like well that could have been a scruffy song and that could have been a scruffy song and it's like but i couldn't more, stop my brain from more. doing that Actually, some of those songs were scruffy songs, like uh, Jack Hammers was a scruffy mm. song. Uh, Where'd You Go was a scruffy song. Uh, Lover's Day was a scruffy song. So yeah, a lot of them were scruffy songs. So. And you know, I did the cover for for one of his records. Oh yeah, you did. Which one did you, not Studebaker, which you no, did? Uh, from the Book of Flames. Yeah, Book of Flames. Yeah. And you, you did some of the scruffy art too, didn't you? Yes, I, I was the one who did the scruffy records. Yeah, so uh, yeah, when when we started playing in, in scruffy, because um, uh, he knew I went to art school, and then one day I came over to his apartment, and he had decided to make a jacket with a scruffy the cat character, which is the one you always see that scruffy the cat, and I didn't know that you know he had any idea about doing art and i saw that you know he had just he just cut something in a piece of cardboard uh a stencil and then he another cut another stencil for the letters and he just spray painted on the back of his jacket and i went oh my god that's that's that, i mean it's genius it's like the greatest thing i've ever seen i went to art school for four years and you have just done the greatest piece of art i've ever seen in my entire life and so <laughs> fell into this thing where he would do these, you know, he would do stuff like that Scruffy the Cat, like the t-shirts that you've all seen and and uh, uh, the and, and a lot of the posters. He would do like half of the posters in his style. And then I would do the other half of the posters in my, you know, overwrought, you know, style of mine. And then the decision was that I would do all the album covers and then I would do the album covers. He would do the t-shirts. So it was really great because, you know, I, I spent my whole four years in art school wanting to be in a rock band, basically, which was actually not a bad deal because 
being in art school <clears throat> in the mid to late 70s was really good for music, basically. Because like, you know, punk rock hit art school. It was a good combination. And so, uh, uh, you know, when, when uh, I got out of art school and I just basically spent all my time hanging around the clubs, working in record stores, desperately trying to get someone to play music with. And, you know, I, I just didn't do any artwork. And then when we started the band together, that got me doing artwork uh, again because of Charlie, you know, saying, oh, we'll paint jackets, we'll make posters. We even put out our own art fanzine called Inko Dog, which was absolutely fabulous. Um, uh, and stuff like that. So, you know, that actually got me back into doing artwork was, I mean, Charlie was just like, uh, he was all ideas. And, you know, it, this was, I think, I don't know, I think this is before the whole like, you know, DI, you know, the term DIY came along, right. the whole ethos. I think that was just, uh might have been getting started but anyway charlie obviously was like he, he that was his mindset the diy thing we made our jackets we 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 we, we made our t-shirts we actually took those stencils and made shirts we made our own posters we did all of that and it was just charlie and then he would i you know we were we were like laurel and hardy you know he we were he would say why don't we do this and no matter how stupid the idea was, I would say, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and we would do it. I, I did tell you a funny story was, was see, the first band, Scrubby the Cat, was like these two friends of mine. And I was playing with them and Charlie said, I need to do some recording. Let's do it. So that was the original band. We played for about a year and then Charlie decided he didn't care for the other musicians and that band broke up and then his friend Matt came and we started a new band. So, uh, and that's the band everyone knows as Scruffy the Cat, even though the first band was called Scruffy the Cat, whatever, here I am. I'm now venturing into Spinal Tap territory. <laughs> the first drummer blew up. Um, anyway, so between the time that the first and second band, uh, the second band got together, Charlie came to me and said, I got us a gig. And I said, that's great, but we don't have a band. <laughs> and he said, no, this will be great. Uh, we'll, we're gonna play, but we're gonna play through fuzz boxes. And I said, sure. <laughs> and so we went and played a, a show uh, for an all art, art crowd with a friend who played rhythm on a on a pot of water <laughs> which he hit with a drumstick and you know everything about it was completely wrong but when charlie had really wrong ideas all i could say was sure let's go do it and we did and it was horribly embarrassing but i do have to say i did it <laughs> <laughs> but he seemed like a very charismatic fellow you couldn't really say no to a guy like that oh yeah no no and I did decide early on, it's like, you know, half of his ideas were incredibly stupid, but, you know, the results could be great. So I, I just learned to trust his instincts. And, and you know, because I, I, I think early on, I probably uh, thought maybe, you know, it, it, the ideas were bad or something, and then things 
were okay. And then I just decided after that, sure, well, whatever he says, yeah, I'm just going to agree to it. I'm not even going to think about it. So. <laughs> really happy that you guys were still pals even after the band broke up that you guys you stayed friends you worked with them like that's cool to me yeah yeah i mean yeah you know obviously it wasn't all paradise i'm i'm not gonna try to paint it as 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 being you know rosier than it was i mean there certainly were problems so you know let's not pretend it was better than it was so uh, but I'm not going to rehash any problems. So, yeah, yeah, because sometimes you go like, "Hey, what happened to that guy?" You know, and you, oh, I don't, I haven't talked to him in 40 years. You know, so it's it's just nice that there was at least. Oh, no, we did definitely, obviously, we did definitely stay in contact. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think that I think that's kind of cool, and because um, sometimes you know these bands will break up and they literally never speak again for not for even for any batteries and they just they just fall out of orbit yeah oh yeah i definitely know about people like that so yeah but you all the other scruffy guys that were around like are, are you i can still in touch with stona and oh sure actually yeah no i talk to stona all the time uh so i actually been trying to drag you know like i said I, you know uh me going out and playing I've, I've been trying to drag stona into it but i mean stona's really busy you know you know with it with the books and stuff like that so oh yeah yeah and he wasn't he teaching for a while too not teaching no he 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 does um <clears throat> he he does like technical copywriting and stuff like he does a lot of professional writing besides his you know his stuff and and you know he runs a he does lots of charity work he does a huge amount of charity work he runs like you know you know he's a publisher Right. Uh, yes. 
and uh, and then they have a farm in Concord where they grow food and give that away for charity. So yeah, it's just incredibly busy. So I don't know if you remember this. Remember Tower Records used to have that that free magazine Pulse. Yeah, it slipped my mind that that was Tower's magazine, but of course, yeah, I definitely. Yeah, so Pulse. So you'd get Pulse, and in the back they would have. It was actually really cool. They'd break it down. They'd say, Austin, here's what's going on in Austin. San Francisco, here's what's happening there. Boston, here's what's happening there. And my perception was that that I had this romantic idea that all the bands in Boston, based on Pulse magazine, mm-hmm. um, were pals. There was a kind of like a fraternity. Oh, honestly, yeah. You know, I, 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 really, I yeah. No, I, I, I don't think that... I, I, I think that was fairly true. We all knew each other. I think I think to a great extent we all still know each other. You know, it's funny. I I, I went back to school uh, five or six years ago. I think it may have been a bit longer than that ago. And uh, you know, I got the sense of, from some people who are interested in music and stuff like that. Uh, I did get the sense. You know, people were sort of envious about, you know, oh, the scene that you were in. And I understand that 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 does not exist anymore. Right. And and you know, I am aware that I was in the right place at the right time. You know, uh, it you know, it was just a it was just a matter of being there at that time, and that doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, we did all know each other. I mean, Boston's not a big city. And geographically, it's not a big city. Uh, and you were all in this, you all played in the same club. So sure, yeah, we did all know each other. Did you ever have a bill with the Del Fuegos? <laughs> of course. Like a million yeah, times, right? Yeah, of course. Um, sure, yeah. I, I'll tell you, funny, funny enough, uh, evidently at the time, I, I looked kind of like Dan. And I, I, I would go into the music stores and they would give me discounts because they thought I was Dan. Oh. Uh, and, and then I would go into my Dan impersonation. I go, thanks, man. I appreciate it. So yes, I, I, I was actually in their, in their beer commercial. I was, uh, uh, they, they shot a scene, uh, which didn't make it into the commercial, but they said, yeah, yeah because I worked in the record store where they shot most of that, uh, honest to goodness the, the, <laughs> on Boylston Street I, I worked in this record store and in the basement were rehearsal spaces and the rehearsal space the Del Fuegos were in one space with the Volcano Sons and then the next space was Scruffy the Cat and then the next space was the Zulus and Salem 66 they, you know that was the basement and so, <laughs> so uh, um so that's where they shot the, their Miller commercial and we're all hanging around watching them and they're like, hey, and they were like, oh, Steve, man, you want to be in the commercial? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. So I was supposed to come out with a pizza and they filmed us, but they didn't like it. So yeah, they, uh, it, it didn't look funny. So it didn't go in the commercial. So sure. Yeah, we all knew each other. I used to go to loft parties. The Del Fuegos would play all the time. They were great at a loft party. Believe me. They were oh, fabulous. I bet. I bet they tore oh. it up. Oh, they would go on at like uh, two o'clock in the morning and play till dawn. I remember dawn coming up. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. So did you ever think that because you were you guys were so smart about not being tempted by the major label money? Did you have the same 
idea that that commercial would backfire. I certainly didn't, but I, but and I'm I, surprised. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't care. I didn't. You know, I, to tell you the truth, you know, I didn't drink, and uh, and you know when when they did their Miller commercial, a lot of bands were getting signed by Miller, and and I I informed Scruffy. I said, look, you know, if Miller comes and offers to make Scruffy a, a Miller band. I don't care what you guys do. I'm not being in the commercial, you know, because I don't drink. I'm not going to stand up there with a beer. <laughs> and, you know, this is ridiculous. So that was my only opinion about it. You know, I was like, that's all I could say. So, you know. What, um, the decision not to drink, was that just something that you just self preservation or you just weren't interested? No, no, no. It just that I never picked up the habit, you know, it just never, right. it just never started. So, uh, you know, it it just it just never. I don't know. It's just the way it was. Were your parents supportive of your foray into? I mean, obviously went to art school, but were they supportive of your foray into music? Is it? My my guess is that they they probably were. Uh, uh, <laughs> not really, <laughs> not really. Uh, no, it was it was really difficult. Um, the uh, the uh, you know it's actually older than all of them uh because for one thing when i was a kid i really really wanted a guitar and they would not let me have a guitar and this wasn't like a religious thing it was it was just that like it was it was just it was uh you know it was just not serious, you know. You know, you can't have a guitar. You cannot have a guitar. My destiny was to be a scientist. That was that was my mom's decision. You're going to be a scientist, you know. But I want to play guitar. You can't play guitar. You can't have a guitar. It was not a very musical household, you know. It was there was not really a lot of music in my house, uh, and uh, <laughs> and so when I, I went off to school to be an astronomy major. And uh, and then uh, uh, after my first semester, in which I never attended a calculus course, I switched my major to art, to my parents' horror, absolute <laughs> horror. And uh, yeah, and then, you know, the fact that I was spending so much time, I had finally gotten a guitar at like the age, you know, I finally managed to, I was a bass player and, and I, I bought a bass for $4. <laughs> Uh, and the fact that you know uh, I was like fooling around on on the guitar was just absolutely horrifying to my mother. Uh, so, but I do have to admit that that my my David is is he, my brother David is like seven years younger than I am. He's much younger than I am. Uh, and so when I was like, you know desperately trying to learn guitar david was like 10 years old and he would like sneak into my room and pick up my guitar and figure things out that i agonized over yeah my parents definitely blamed that on me and it was like i had corrupted my little brother <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it you know it wasn't a moral thing it was just that this was oh frivolous that's what it was no yeah playing music was frivolous so, so right um, it didn't seem career-minded yeah exactly exactly so yeah that i don't think they have 
ever, ever. My mom's 91, and I don't think she's ever accepted the fact that I went into music and, and went into art. And that's probably why I did go back to college at like the age of 60 and got a cartography degree. I did get it, finally get a bachelor of science. So, so you know, it's like, oh, well, I guess I can finally say I did become the scientist my mom wanted me to become. Well, when I mean Scruffy played with some pretty big bands, so but I guess that wouldn't have yeah. made any difference to them. Oh no, not like. not one. No, the only thing that's ever impressed my mom. <clears throat> uh, no, the only thing would have been sort of like the literary connections, like you know Stona's literary connections, stuff like that. Yeah, the fact that we got introduced by John Kenneth Galbraith, you know. At a, award ceremonies things like that no none of the musical things whatsoever your art like the the album covers for the scruffy there's a there's a through line there there's a sensibility who were your who were your guys like who were your artists that were oh well well definitely i think when i was a kid when i think i was like nine or ten you know i i stumbled across the surrealists um you know uh i i have no idea when i first like encountered Salvador Dali uh, because you know he's always been ubiquitous in society uh, but Yves Tanguy I think when I was 10 years old Yves Tanguy became a, a huge uh, influence on me and so uh, and that introduced me to all the surrealists and so uh, the surrealists were a huge influence and then I think uh, when I was like in in, in high school uh, uh, Edward Gorey, uh, just by accident, I stumbled on Edward Gorey. And then eventually uh, the, uh, uh, the underground comics uh, uh, artists, first the like San Francisco people. And then uh, in the eighties, uh, there was a, a, a bunch of uh, people who were associated with uh, uh, hardcore punk, uh, underground comics and stuff like that. Uh, so, I mean, there's obviously tons more, but then there are like some obscure people like Lee Brown Coy that no one knows about. He, he actually like illustrated like the Arkham House books and he is, he is great, but uh, all sorts of various people. I mean, nowadays I just work in black and white. So my influences tend to be black and white people. A lot of them are like com uh, like 40s and 50s comic book artists. Mm. And some of them are like underground comic artists. So they're the black and white people. So uh, the stuff I was doing with the spray paint and stencils, that was just like following Charlie's lead with spray paint and stencils. So I don't know what that was. That's mainly using like, you know, sort of like, surrealism and collage all thrown together so i'm actually a huge fan of like chicago imagists like uh the harry who people and jim nut and people like that so um i like lots of people i mean i love you know hieronymus bach obviously you know and peter bruegel and and james enser and i mean i like oddballs because i'm an oddball <laughs> <laughs> What is your your daily practice in terms of art? Are you are you the kind of guy who's creating something every day? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, I've got, I have no demands on my time, so it's like seven days a week, you know, usually from like, well, it can be like from eight in the morning till five in the afternoon, and then, you know, I can be, because a lot of my stuff, uh, the prep work is done digitally. I'll do it in Photoshop and stuff like that. Uh, I can be working until one or two in the morning, uh, you know, and then the f physically, I'll, I'll take stuff that I do uh, digitally, and then uh, you know, I'll I I have to like I paint on objects a lot of times nowadays. Mm. So I'll paint on like chairs and tables, and anything that strikes me as an interesting surface. So uh, so there's like a it's like a two-step process between like the digital stuff and the physical stuff. Uh, religious objects. I tend to like mm. painting religious objects. So. Are you getting like commissions? Like, are you doing work or album covers or work for other people? I, I, I recently did an album cover. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't necessarily get commissions, but uh, I, I I do sell things. Like, <laughs> I have this like sort of pathetic. Like, I have an Instagram. Uh, and, uh, you know, like my Facebook just tends to exist for me to like uh, post pictures of my art and then like friends of mine will see it and if they want to buy it, they can buy it. So. There was a lot of like Battle of the Band stuff going on back then too, right? Like what was what was that all about? It's an old Boston tradition, Battle of the Bands. It's pretty laughable if, if, if you're competitively minded. Scrubby was never competitively minded. It was like, let's go be in the rumble. <laughs> that was just because scruffy would would scruffy would play whenever anyone said if anyone ever asked us to play we'd just go sure <laughs> we um <clears throat> we we could play like five six nights a week <laughs> one time the best thing we ever did was play three times in one night <laughs> what oh yeah 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 we just you know we would just never say no. We played, uh, uh, we played opening at a club, and then we went across town and we headlined a club, and then we played a loft party. <laughs> Good God! Oh sure, yeah. It was like, it was like, just never say no. Just play, you know. Yeah, I, you know, evidently. Well, I guess you know, nowadays it's a completely different thing, but even by like the 90s and later, they had this thing where like you couldn't play unless you hadn't played for four weeks. You know, you, if you had played within four weeks, a, a club wouldn't book you. We played, <laughs> I, like I said, there's a list of our gigs and we were playing like Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Tuesday, we played like every night of the week and and work jobs so then it was just it was tiring but what else are you gonna do that reminds me of like when the grateful dead played on like three continents or something like that the indie rock version i forgot you about that you're right i forgot about that yeah <laughs> that's a bit overkill it takes it out on you but you know i you know i just I, you couldn't say no. It was like, I, you know, I strove my whole life to get in a band and play. I'm not going to turn anyone down, you know. Uh, 
No, but that does make me think that that kind of pace is a young man's pace, right? That's not oh, even. Oh, believe me. Um, never doing that again. Yeah, no, of course, you know, you're 25 years old. Yeah. I mean, you're certainly not getting a whole lot of sleep. And you're, you're living on, you know, we used to make terrible jokes about the four basic food groups being nicotine, caffeine, you know, and I forget what the others were, but yeah, you certainly didn't have a healthy diet. So. Yeah, there's no way you're running a clean engine. No, of course you're... not. No, no. Yeah. What yeah, you no way. But uh, yeah, it was fine. No. Do you remember, oh, by the way, you know who was a brilliant artist is, um, this just occurred to me, is Bill from, from, uh, Bill uh, from Big Dipper. Yeah. Oh, no, he's a great painter. Uh, yeah, Bill's great. Yeah. Did you know him? Vaguely. He was another Midwesterner, so. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I didn't know him personally. I knew the other guys in the band better than him. They asked me to to be their bass player later on they asked me to be their bass player and I, I i didn't i'm not a terribly good bass player so i turned them down was this after steve left yeah it would be after steve left yeah, yeah bill he's got that it's kind of like an edward hopper kind of thing going it's on very yeah it's a very edward hopper thing which is not easy to do well no yeah so. no um any recollections of this is a sentimental question Stephen? but any recollections of playing uh the late great berkeley square here in the bay area yeah i have a really good collection of the berkeley square um <clears throat> you know one of the times we played i think was snake fingers last show mm. i think that was our first show anyway one time we it might have been the second time we went and we we played and no one showed up there was no one there it might you know there might have been eight or ten people there and it it took us completely by surprise because we had played the night before in san francisco and there were a lot of people there and it's like who can explain that i don't know so anyway there was no one there and and our attitude uh with playing to nobody was you don't come out and do your show you know you don't come out and go you know hi berkeley <laughs> you know you recognize the fact that there's pretty much no one there and you come out and you basically like say hi and you kind of like introduce yourself to whoever's there and uh <clears throat> i'm pretty sure we asked the people there what they wanted to hear you know individually <laughs> It turned into a really great show. We might have actually asked whoever was there if anyone wanted to come up and play. Yeah. So yeah, it 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 went from like a complete disaster to be one of the one one of the more enjoyable shows I can remember because I remember like sitting down like on the front of the stage and playing. Uh, yeah, it just turned into like you know, well, there, there's only like a dozen of you people here let's hear what you want to do you know we can't do that with 300 people but i can do we can do that with a dozen people so uh yeah that's always been one of my clearest memories of of, of uh the berkeley square was the time no one showed up and we ended up i think we might have ended up with uh uh like randall singing and charlie playing the drums it just turned into a free-for-all so well it was a cool club i Here's a bill. I saw the Meat Puppets and Soundgarden play together there. 
<laughs> that doesn't actually sound like that bad a bill. No, and you know the meat. Pu- I'll tell you what. The Sound Garden opened. It makes sense. Yeah. The first time that we played in Seattle, and I can't remember what the club was. It was a cute little club. It kind of looked like Hansel and Gretel's, you know, the witch's house in Hansel and Gretel. Um, the woman who booked it, her name was Susan Silver, and she was she was one of the most beautiful women you've ever seen, and she was the nicest, kindest person. She filled your dressing room with all sorts of candy and toys. Um, you know, like 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 ray guns that shot sparks. You know, and it was great. It was like you got there and you felt, you know, you'd been on the road for a month and you were tired, and there were like you could like shoot each other with ray guns and eat candy, and it's like, oh Susan, you're wonderful. And she was uh Chris Cornell's fiance. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, my boyfriend's band, they're they're signing a contract. They're called Soundgarden. So, yeah, no, it's amazing when you meet someone who just instinctively knows how to treat a band so well. And it's like toys and candy. This is this is the greatest thing I've ever had. Did you guys ever play with R.E.M.? No, no. But no. Michael Stipe showed up a few times and, and frowned disapprovingly. Oh, is that right? Oh yeah, he is. Oh, I would have thought he would have liked you guys. No, it was hard to get on Michael Stipe's good side. Steve oh. Earle showed up one time. He did. Yeah. He liked you guys. Yeah, I remember he did. I looked over the side of the stage in Philadelphia, and there's Steve Earle. I'm like, oh look, there's Steve Earle. We opened for Paula Abdul once. I didn't there. know that. How did that happen? <laughs> okay, we didn't really know that either. Uh, we played Spin's first birthday party. This was this was the first year Spin was published. And so it must have been like 1987 or something. <clears throat> and it was at the Palladium in New York. And first of all, I was terribly excited that I was going to be on the same stage that the, the photograph of Paul Simonon on London Calling was, you know, that he's yeah. smashing the bass. And that was at the Palladium. I'm like, oh, I'm going to be on the same stage that, you know, that shot on London Calling is so we showed up for our sound check and it's uh, and it was strangely enough it was Big Dipper Scruffy the Cat and uh and in a headlining act and we showed up and the headlining act was sound checking and it was like a dozen people lip syncing to a tape and we were like what on earth is going on we have no idea who this is and it was Paula Abdul, and it was before her first record came out. And they're saying, well, she's like uh, she's like Madonna's choreographer. She's putting out a record. And we're like, why are we all on a bill together? This is completely bizarre. And of course, only happens in New York. And so they're up there like dashing back and they're all like in, in Capizio leotards and stuff. And, and, uh, and they're lip syncing to a tape. Uh, basically and uh and after sound check uh you know this there's this woman and she is tiny tiny woman you know it's like four foot eleven uh and our bass player mac just went over and was hitting on her <laughs> like no how are you and then like two months later 
when her first album came out, and it was Paula Abdul, and it was like, what? What was that bill all about? So only in New York could you have Scruffy the Cat open for Paula Abdul. What a strange proximity. Yes. The other really strange one was Yola Tango opening for Scruffy the Cat, opening for Otis Day and the Knights. Yeah, us and Yola Tango, this was at a hockey rink in Connecticut uh, at the college. And us and, and uh, Yola Tango were just sitting in the dressing room, like, you know, examining our life choices. Like, how did we end up here? What did we do wrong? How did we end up here? And they were, <laughs> what is day in the nights were on stage, you know, doing their version of Shout and had all the college students on their backs and stuff. And we're like, we, we didn't go into music to end up here. We, we're we're going to have to straighten our lives out so this never happens again. <laughs> that must have been physically taxing, though, to get into a car or a van and drive cross country. And you guys weren't flying, right? I mean, that was... Sure, yeah. Uh, I can tell you, because I am a cartographer, that it was 12,179 miles in six weeks. That doesn't even seem possible. It doesn't, but it was. You know what? <laughs> you know what the favorite uh, 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 Christmas gift that every tour band gave to uh, the 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 booking agent was a road atlas. <laughs> really, our next show is where uh, our favorite was. We had a show in uh, Vancouver, and our next show was in Denver. <laughs> Oh God. Yeah. So, so like that Christmas gift suggests that maybe a tour could be linear. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it happened all the time. It's like, you know, the, does the booking agent understand geography? We don't think so. I read an article that they were saying that's what killed Hendrix because he, they had booked him very similar to what you're talking about. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, no, your next show is 1,300 miles away in 18 hours. It's like, no, right. the human body is not constructed for that, you know. Right, right. To a, to a booking agent, it's like, no, it's a great gig. And it's like, no, you don't understand. I guess that, I guess it's like physically possible, but, yeah, yeah. Well, you made a lot of trips out to California. You guys certainly played here a couple times. Sure, yeah, no, definitely. You would come down, you would go through weed. I always remember coming through weed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah you play San Francisco, you play Berkeley, San Francisco, you play Los Angeles, play San Diego. Uh, we'd hang out with our best friend, uh, Mojo Nixon. I don't know mm -hmm. how, but we became best buddies with Mojo. Um, so, Pomona it, College. How about the Beat Farmers? Do you guys ever play with the Beat Farmers? You know what? I don't think we did because you got into this thing where you were all in the same circuit and you were basically like headliners. It's like we never. Oh, God, I'm trying to remember. Yeah. When you were all at like basically the same level, you were sort of like all following each other by a few days. So there were a lot of bands we didn't play with because we were basically, uh, you know, all following the same circuit. And the Beat Farmers would have been one of them. Yeah. 
I remember a lot of those bands on Relativity, like the Dancing Hoods and Bleach Black, and they just oh, we played with Bleach Black all the time. They were good. They were so nice. Were they? Yeah, actually, they were. Yeah, he was an incredible guitar player. But uh, yeah, we played with them a few times. Uh, pretty sure they were from Connecticut, so we would play in Connecticut with them. Yeah, they were great guys. I like that record they did. Um, for people out there who are listening and they want to order some of Scruffy the Cat stuff, is that ordering it from the site? Is that still something that that is fulfilled if people want to order stuff? As far as I know, that is that is. Yeah. Okay, it's not, and then the money goes to you, you guys. It's not a. Yeah, to tell you the truth, any money that is made by Scruffy the Cat goes to the Presbyterian Church of South Boston. It's all charity. So. Oh. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, Burns, you know, Burns, who was in the band. Uh, that's his church. So, oh, okay. Yeah, we give any merchandise money to Burns' church. Oh, that's super cool. Very <laughs> cool. So people, that is a still a live thing people can do. Man, I'm really stoked that you came on the show. I, I'm excited to hear your new band that hasn't been put together yet. And I'm really grateful for your time. I'm glad we connected. And, uh, you know, keep up the great work, man. Uh, thank you for everything. Hey, thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Okay, great. Anytime. Thanks, pal. There you go. Stephen Fredette of Scruffy the Cat. What a great guy. I really enjoyed that conversation. He's the best, and his art is amazing. Check it out. STFRED103 is his Instagram handle, STFRED103. Find him there and follow him. ScruffyTheCat.com is where you need to go to uh, get all things that are related to Scruffy the Cat. Music, t-shirts, posters, all the things, they're all there. And get the music, because the music is incredible. There's not one false step. Two anthologies on Omnivore, two albums, two EPs, get it all. You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor, or you can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast, or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget to check out BombshellRadio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. And Stereo Embers, the podcast, is now available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. Let's close the show with a longer listen to The Land of a Thousand Girls by Scruffy the Cat. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast, only right here on Bombshell Radio.